This is Ron Oral, and I'm here with the Deals Activist Podcast. I've got with me, I'm very excited, uh, uh, Kai Likafet, who's the uh, just joined Sidley Austin as their lead activist defense partner. He came over from uh, Vincent and Elkins, where he built up that uh, that uh, activist defense practice into a huge number. We have a soon coming out deal uh, league ta league table on activism, and it shows that you have 24 uh, defended 24 companies targeted by activists. Uh, just in 2017, which kind of surpassed all of Wachtell and Skadden's numbers. And uh, so we're very excited to have you. Thank you so much for coming here, Kai. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. Okay, so I wanted to get right to it. And if you could talk a little bit about um, how you were able to build that practice up to such a big level. I mean, I know that Vincent and Elkins, uh, they had a lot of uh, oil and gas uh, companies that they defended. Um, uh, and, you know, oil and gas didn't do that well. There weren't a lot of activism there. How did you build up such a big, def big activist defense practice there? It's an interesting question. I joined Vincent Elkins from Crevasse, where I started my U.S. career. And uh, when I joined V&E in 2011, there was a lot of activism in the oil and gas industry. So at the beginning, uh, I was primarily defending the uh, oil and gas clients of V&E against activism, the V&E client base, if you will. Mm -hmm. But then at the end of 2014, you remember, Ron, the oil and, uh, oil and gas prices just crashed. Right. And even all the activists got burned. Uh, so that was it with activism in the oil and gas industry. But uh, I had come to appreciate uh, and, uh, and like activism defense. So I started to go outside the oil and gas industry uh, go across, uh, across industries and uh, look for companies to defend uh, elsewhere in the United States. And what I realized very quickly is there are hardly any dedicated uh, proxy fight and activism specialists, which mm -hmm. surprised me. Unlike investment banks, where most banks have uh, at this point a dedicated activism banker, most law firms don't. At most law firms, including the big law firms, uh, most of the partners who uh, handle activism situation are M&A partners right. who do activism on the side once or twice a year. So I saw a real uh, opportunity to create a niche practice just by dedicating 100% of my time to proxy fights and activism defense. Yeah, and you created quite a team there and uh, you represented companies in a variety of different sectors, so congratulations on that. Um, so now you're at Sidley, and you're kind of uh, they're just kind of up, you know, starting out in the activism defense uh, field. What you know, it's a huge law firm, uh, lots of lawyers representing huge companies. I mean, are you hoping to now start defending uh, larger companies? Uh, you know, I know you did a lot of small mid-cap companies at V&E. You know, is this what do you what do you expect this to go at uh, at Sidley now? Yeah, Sidley is an amazing platform. Over 2,000 attorneys, wow. uh, the sixth law, la largest law firm on the planet, uh, over 500 public company clients, mm -hmm. and uh, they have a lot of talent. The only thing that Sidley was missing was a dedicated attorney to proxy fight and activism defense. Right. And uh, so I, I'm hoping to build up that practice at Sidley. There is a lot of uh, support there. We have uh, one of the leading corporate governance practices in the country led by Holly Gregory, who's widely recognized as one of the corporate governance gurus uh, in the nation. We have uh, 24 alums from the SEC 
which makes obviously for a lot of support in a proxy fight where the SEC plays a significant role. Oh, yeah. We have the law firm of the year for securities litigation. Mm -hmm. um, and we have leading practices uh, across all industries. We have probably the number one REIT practice. We have the number one life science practice. A lot of we activists the, in the REIT sphere. Exactly. <laughs> and that force was, those companies combined. Exactly. And that was one of the reasons why I chose Sidley. So there is a lot of opportunity to represent uh, companies and have strong support from other specialists who help us uh, successfully fend off activists. And so I was curious what you would, uh, what kind of advice you'd give to a company. It seems like a lot of companies uh, that, are, that suddenly are faced with an activist don't have the protections in place, the bylaws, the, the advance notice bylaws that really they should have uh, when facing that. So it seems like in many cases uh, they, should, they should get a, a kind of an analysis of are they, are they prepared for an, act, an activist and that's something maybe that you could provide uh, in, in a case where they haven't actually faced an activist but maybe they're in a consolidating industry such as uh, the semiconductor industry where activists often are, are targeting left, right and center. Um, anyways, I'm just curious, you know, what, would you, what kind of advice would you give to a company that uh, uh, is uh, worried that they might be targeted by an activist? Yeah, companies, in my, in my view, should always ask someone with proxified experience to go through their bylaws. It never stops to amaze me what kind of nuggets I find in bylaws of <laughs> companies that have been existent, uh, in existence uh, for a while. I mean, oftentimes I, I defend companies whose bylaws were put in place at IPO in the 1980s mm -hmm. and have never really been fully updated. And uh, the, the fact of the matter is the bylaws matter. The fine print matters in a proxy fight. And many bylaws are perfectly suitable for mm -hmm. peacetime, mm -hmm. but they don't work during wartime. And uh, so, I mean, on average, when I look at bylaws, I find anywhere between five and 45 mistakes. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I get in, during peacetime, we can still fix those bylaws. If there is already an activist uh, yelling at the company, it's significantly harder to amend the bylaws uh, without uh, drawing advanced scrutiny from the courts and, uh, of course, the investors. Right. So, can we give you an example of something that you that you find a lot of companies that aren't prepared? I mean, they. It seems like one of the things that they should have in their advance notice bylaws is to make sure that the director candidates that the activist is nominating. Uh, have a, a lot of detail about them. That's, I guess that's something or... That or is something, be... but it's sometimes even more basic than that. Uh, one provision that have 95% of corporate America has the following provision wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and it goes to when can a company adjourn a meeting? Mm -hmm. So let's imagine we are in a proxy fight. It's too close to call. It's hours away from the annual meeting. And uh, you are one of your large shareholders tells you, okay, you convinced me, I'm going to flip my vote, but I need a couple of more hours uh, to cut through the red tape internally. Mm -hmm. um, can you just adjourn the meeting until tomorrow? Mm -hmm. The answer uh, is no, I guess. And the problem, <laughs> In some of these bylaws, I guess, right? Yes, and that's exactly the point. 95% I mean, of the bylaws say that the chairman of the meeting may adjourn the meeting in the absence of a quorum. Well, a quorum is never really the problem in a proxy fight. No. You have typically a high turnout. Yeah, absolutely. So these kind of companies uh, face a lot of uh, difficult questions when they uh, try to adjourn a meeting, if then the bylaws explicitly tell you that they cannot. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've you got to get in there and fix the problem before you're targeted by an activist. Uh, I think that that's an important thing. All right, let's talk about some recent, recent trends we've seen in activism. Um, 
last we saw very, uh, several high-profile CEOs of companies targeted by activists. Um, and I'm actually working on a story about how we're seeing a, a lot of uh, uh, male hedge funds target women CEOs over the years. And we have some statistics to back that up, which is kind of interesting. But overall, we're seeing you know, activists go after the CEO. And I'm curious about your thoughts about that trend. And particularly, we're seeing some of them where they actually come up with, where the activist hedge fund manager comes up with their own CEO candidate, saying, you know, we want to put a minority slate of directors on the board. Here's a uh, CEO candidate that we think would do a better job than the current CEO. And this is, you know, an escalation of activism. And I feel like it's something we're seeing more of in recent years. So, you know, how would you advise a company in that situation? That's an interesting trend. And let me just begin by saying that I'm outraged to hear the father of two daughters that activists are, are targeting female CEOs. <laughs> yeah. um, but putting that aside uh, for a moment, uh, in my experience, activists are almost always targeting CEOs. Mm -hmm. They have just been less open about it in the past. Mm -hmm. So why is it? Well, typically, not always, but typically activists are targeting companies that are underperforming. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not much of a stretch to believe that the activist at the end of the day wants a CEO's head. But in the past, they have been less open about it. Why is that? Well, that's because ISS, Glass-Lewis, and institutional investors are more reluctant to throw out the CEO because they are concerned that they might end up with a rudderless company. Yeah. That issue is being fixed by activists once they present an alternative replacement CEO. As along with a presentation explaining what they would like to see the company do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A very thorough. It has to be very thorough to get the support of the ISSs and Glass Lewises. That's right. ISS and Glass Lewis. They want to see a complete business plan. They want to know not only who is going to run the company, but also what's the business plan for the next couple of years. Is. I mean, ISS and Glass Lewis understand. I mean, giving control to a new CEO is a huge step, and uh, they don't do that absent special circumstances. So let me give you another kind of related scenario, and I'm curious what your thoughts are about this and whether this is something a company should worry about if they're ever targeted, if they're, uh, you know, a, a, a situation where the company is vulnerable, they've maybe missed the financial statement, or they have an uh, interim CEO, so they don't have a full-time CEO. And again, they're maybe in a consolidating industry. Um, the activists maybe find some private equity firms or some strategic people that are actually, would like to buy the business. And uh, the activists, I guess, uh, I mean, is that a situation that the company should be worried about? It seems to me, yes. I mean, and, and particularly if the activist can identify, you know, that, that he feels the company is, 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 has, is undervalued, that even with the, that the stock market is overreacted to, to the scandal or to the, uh, to the situation. So maybe it's two, two separate situations, this, uh, crisis and then an interim CEO or like a combination of those two. Yeah, these are very uh, interesting scenarios, both of them. Let's start with the... There's a crisis, a financial statement crisis. Yeah. I mean, typically activists stay away from companies who are going through a potential uh, restatement of the financials mm -hmm. because they have a difficulty uh, pricing, pricing the stock correctly. Mm -hmm. However, we've seen a couple of high-profile cases last year mm -hmm. where uh, celebrity activists still decided to take the risk and run a proxy contest against a company that is in the middle of a fin uh, restatement of the financials. Why did they do that? Because they considered the risk and decided, look, even in a worst case scenario, we come out on top. Mm -hmm. um, but 
what we see quite often is uh, a scenario where a company is being attacked by, by, a, by a short seller first. They drive, right. drive down the stock, uh, oftentimes combined with uh, financial restatements uh, or at least investigations in that regard. And then a year later, the same company, which has been harassed by a short seller, is suddenly facing a shareholder activist who wants right. to run a proxy contest because knows the stock is undervalued. Right, right, right. So that we is oftentimes funny. See, see this in tandem. Yeah, uh, no, I think I've seen a few cases where the short sellers got... Uh, squeezed out because the activist was able to drive a company to be sold for a major premium, and they were still in there. But that, that's, that's an interesting that you, that you brought that up. Um, okay, so another interesting trend we're seeing, and I mean, this is something we see every year, a few of these, but I feel like they're popping up more and more frequently. Change of control contest. You talked about the situation, about you know, what threshold you need to be able to get uh, the support of ISS and Glass-Lewis, the two big influential proxy advisory firms, and that support is hugely important for the activist. Uh, and uh, and, I've, and it's much more difficult to do that in a change of control where they, you know, they need to bring in the CEO candidate. But um, I don't know. Why do you think we're seeing, we see every now and then these change of control contests? And then there's a follow-up. I feel like the activist does have some leverage where they can uh, some flexibility, I guess, with it, where they can reduce the size of their slate if they feel like they're not going to win. So, I don't know. What do you think about change of controls? So, change of control fights are still rare. Yeah. They're about 25, 27% of the fights are change of control fights, so it's a smaller number. Um, when does an activist uh, run a change of control fight? They need to be really, really confident that the shareholders are behind them. Why? Mm. Because typically, shareholders are very reluctant to hand over control to a minority shareholder without the payment of a control premium. Right. So uh, it's not just ISS and Glass Lewis, also the institutional investors are reluctant to hand over control. Mm -hmm. However, there are cases from time to time that the activist census shareholder base is so outraged by the conduct of management and board that they will support even a change of control. In those cases, an activist goes forward it's typically a celebrity activist who also has a lot of uh, credibility and a lot of support on the street. Um, but still, these fights remain, remain rare. What we've seen last year a couple of times, interestingly, is that an activist started out by going after control mm -hmm. and then later cut back their, their, uh, their slate right, yeah. to a minority slate. That's typically not a good sign. For Why? the activists. For the activists. Right, it typically they're, they're, means that means they're that, losing, basically. Yeah. Right. It typically means that they overestimated the shareholder support. Now, yeah. sometimes an activist just goes ahead and nominates a large number of uh, directors because they want uh, the, first, uh, the, first, uh, the first reaction of the company to be shock and awe. Right, right. And, uh, and they settle. Basically. That's right. That's a settle. They come in demanding seven board seats. It's easier to settle for two right. board seats as, <laughs> if you, as, as, as compared to coming in with three directors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If it's three, then the settlement might be mutually agreed upon directors. Uh, so let's talk about settlements. You brought up some interesting statistics that uh, last year the number of settlements dropped by 50% according to FactSet, which is quite interesting considering the fact that proxy contests that go the distance typically will more frequently, and I think that happened last year, go for the management or uh, the activists will lose. I mean, the situation you always see is when companies know that they're going to lose, they settle, is one of the reasons why they settle, um, to bring in a couple activists. Um, so anyways, uh, I'm curious what you th thought about the statistics. Uh, and then um, 
when you think when you think a company, I know this is broad broad statement, but uh, when do you think an, a company should settle, and when do you think they should fight it out to the to the finish? Yeah. Particularly since their companies are winning more more than not. You know, very good question. So there has just been a change uh, in corporate America, a change in sentiment. In 2014, the activists won about 70% of all proxy fights. And we all remember when, uh, when, uh, when Starbot uh, took out the entire board of Darden. Yes, um, which the said, Garden owner and there was the Red Lobster spinoff. Yeah, right, and that sent shockwaves to corporate America. Yeah. And for some time period, um, boards were literally settling left and right at the first sign of trouble. Uh, but in the last couple of years, um, three things have changed. Number one, the big three index funds have oh, come yeah. out very, very vocally against quick settlements. They say, well, look, a quick settlement is actually the opposite of shareholder democracy. They don't want to come the companies to settle without giving the shareholders a say because, I, I, after all, a settlement that provides for a, a board shake-up and a change in direction of the company, let alone a sale process, I mean, that is a big change. And they say, well, look, shouldn't we shareholders be hurt before mm -hmm. you do that? So that's number one. Is it just to interrupt yes. you for a second, isn't part of that also that the big index funds also, they want to... Uh, be involved, uh, not just the vote, but like they'd like to hear about it. Like a lot of times these companies settled and the company and the activists hasn't, hasn't approached them with their presentation on, on each side of the point. Like they want to be involved in, in the whole thing. That's, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly okay. right. They want to see the director candidates right, who, okay. are, who are uh, under discussion. They want to see what the investment thesis of the activist is. They may or may not agree with it. And, what, what, and that is the second point. Um, Institutional investors in the last two, three years have realized that not all activists are created equal. There are yeah. some activists who are world-class investors and really do create value. Mm -hmm. And then there are all those others. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of value being destroyed by, uh, by certain activists who just don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So um, the institutional investors they make a case-by-case -case decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we find is uh, to the extent a board has the courage of their conviction and they take a fight to a vote, to your point, uh, they have actually been doing pretty well at the ballot box. In 2016, the board prevailed 73% of the time. Right. Last year, over 60% of the time. In the last three years, I was involved in over 30 proxy fights. I lost only two. Wow. So you can tell that um, while proxy fights are certainly not a walk in the park, if uh, at the end of the day you may prevail, that is actually a reason uh, not to settle if, and this is uh, to answer your last question, if you believe the activist is wrong. Now, oftentimes the activists have a point, sometimes they actually have multiple points, sometimes they are just right on everything. And if there's common ground between the company and an activist, there's obviously no reason to fight. Uh, but uh, what I always tell companies, don't settle just because you want to avoid a proxy fight. If you have no common ground and you disagree strongly with the activist thesis, mm -hmm. the fight will not end with a settlement. It's just that the battleground will be relocated to the inside of the boardroom and then you're going to have to And maybe fight. next year, with, uh, if you only hit a one-year standstill agreement, 
they could come back with another proxy fight next year. For That's next exactly year. right. That's exactly right, Ron. I mean, oftentimes, after a couple of months in the boardroom, the missiles start to fly again, yeah. and the activists start to threaten a proxy fight in year two. Right. So sometimes it's just uh, better to get over with it right, and right, have, right. have one fight, let the shareholders decide, and, uh, and have peace afterwards. So a couple of things I wanted to point, uh, note, which I thought were interesting. One is the, uh, you're talking about the, how the index funds want to roll. Index funds are becoming huger. There's a big shift of money going from actively managed funds to index funds. So I think that they're going to be having a bigger voice. And if they don't want settlements, I think there's going to be fewer settlements. And the second point is know the activists. That's where you come in. You know, this is maybe why they may not want to hire their, gen their regular outside counsel because uh, they may not know the difference between a high-profile, well-known activist and how the institutional investor base would respond to that activist versus the lesser-known activist that, uh, that uh, you could probably tell them very quickly that they're you know, not going to have much of a uh, uh, support among the investor class, right? It's, it's important to know who the activist is. It is very important to know, uh, how, to understand how an activist is going to react in any specific circumstance mm -hmm. and to... Uh, kind of predict how they react mm -hmm. to, uh, to certain counter-proposals, to certain moves, whether they are going to file a lawsuit, whether they're going to go to a proxy fight. These are all very, very important uh, data points that you need to know in order to negotiate with an activist because let's not forget most fights end up in an amicable resolution. You just need to know how to move the pieces across the board at the right time to get to a result that makes sense for the company. That's interesting. Uh, does the activist have the financial wherewithal to launch a, a litigation battle? Do they have a track record of launching litigation battles and you know, hiring people in Delaware, let's say if they're incorporated in Delaware? These are all things they need to know, and you guys have that expertise in that. You know, The other council may not. So I wanted to just bring up um, something else on the director. Uh, you know, uh, you know whether they should settle to bring in uh, outside directors or not. A big deal is whether to decide whether to bring in the activist hedge fund manager or his 35-year-old uh, <laughs> uh, portfolio manager. A lot of times, these are younger managers that uh, activists uh, have working at their firm. They're probably the analysts that came up with the strategy to target this company in the first place. Probably, <laughs> so they want to get that guy on the board versus an outside director. How important, you know, it seems like uh, from the company's point of view, if you're going to settle, it's, yeah, it may be better to bring outside directors or a mutually agreed upon director would be probably even better from the company's point of view, uh, uh, you know, or some of the activists outside candidates. And then secondly, if you don't want to do that, maybe I've seen this seem to succeed in some cases. The company brings, the, you know, just a separate from the activist candidates, they bring in their own, you know, director nominees, which makes sense, I think, if the... The, some of the directors are, you know, over-tenured, over-boarded, uh, senior citizen, not, doesn't have the, the skills set that, uh, that the company needs at that time. You know, maybe they don't have a cybersecurity expert that they need or something like that. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I mean, outside directors, that, that seems like it's a good idea for them to bring those in, right? Well, typically, um, typically it is a good idea to take a long and hard look at the board and see whether there cannot make, be made some changes to refresh the board. Yeah. And um, when it comes to settlement negotiations, uh, it is actually typically the most important sticking point whether the activist hedge fund will be allowed to send a principal or employee off the fund to the board mm -hmm. or whether you agree to independent directors. That's In my experience, few companies are opposed to adding high-qualified uh, independent directors. 
That's mm -hmm. never the issue. The issue is whether Even if you, they're nominated by the activists, they're like their candidates. It this depends. Is not like a Trojan horse situation. <laughs> it, these kind of independent directors fall into two categories. Mm -hmm. They're the truly independent directors who were literally identified by the activist a couple of weeks prior to the nomination notice mm -hmm. and uh, who actually really have no close relationship to the activist. Mm -hmm. Companies are typically or rarely opposed to any of these if they are qualified. The problem is, well, what are what about those semi-independent director candidates who are independent on paper but have known the activists for 20 years? They sat on other boards with they, them, other proxy fights with them or something like that? Exactly, yeah. and maybe they even shared a room in college. Right, right, okay. So um, <laughs> that is a different story. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, okay, we're going to wrap up in a few minutes, but Kai, really appreciate you taking the time um, to do this. Um, the deadline for nominating directors is always something I find fascinating. I always put them on my calendar, and I, <laughs> I put the day before the deadline expires. I put one on just actually just before we started today. Uh, and um, Because oftentimes you see these settlements happen at the last minute prior to the, the nomination deadline for nominee directors. And of course I noticed that if the deadline is postponed and there's an activist with a 5% stake, <clears throat> that I could put two and two together that it's because of that <laughs> activist that the company is postponing, they want more time for whatever reason. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, some situation, the activists launch a public campaign and the nomination deadline is months away, they give the company a lot of time to respond. Other situations I've noticed, not as frequently, they launch a campaign and the nomination deadline is right there. And so they either have to, the company has to respond immediately or the activists will launch a proxy fight. So I'm just, it seems like that's not really fair from the company's point of view. And the institutional investors probably don't support the activists when they don't give the company time to respond. The company needs time to respond, particularly when the activists want them to spin off divisions, sell themselves. You know, uh, do massive restructurings. You know, uh, described in the 99-page white papers. In some cases, yeah. the company needs time to just respond. Yeah, it's not fair, but uh, fairness is one of the first victims in an activism campaign. Okay. So, um, so much for that. Um, look, what activist hedge funds like most, other than profits, <coughs> is flexibility. Yeah. So, most activist hedge funds will approach a company with months to go prior to the uh, nomination deadline. They like to have the runway. Mm -hmm. uh, why? Well, at the time nomin the nomination deadline comes around, they need to put up or shut up. Right. Uh, but once an activist is committed to a fight by submitting no uh, a notice, they cannot really uh, walk away from that fight absent uh, extraordinary circumstances without damaging their reputation. That's yeah, very embarrassing to cancel the proxy fight. Right. <laughs> Which is why uh, it is rare for activists to show up in the 11th hour. The circumstances in which you see that is where you have a high-profile celebrity activist who are just 100% convinced of their investment thesis. They have talked to the shareholders. They know they have the support. They know the company is, uh, is on the ropes. And if they give them no time to respond, they will just run for cover and panic. Mm -hmm. And that oftentimes works. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, Kai, I really appreciate you taking a little time to talk to us here at the Deal Activist Podcast, and hope you stop by again sometime soon. I have lots of other interesting activist-related <laughs> subjects to chat about. So thank you for taking a little time, Kai. Thank you for having me. This has been the Deal's Activist Podcast.